Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! So let's review a little bit where we've been during this whole crazy class. Uh, we talked in the beginning about the symbol of the sea and how that's connected to creation and this idea that for, for the ancient peoples, the sea was that embodiment of evil and chaos and danger and death, ultimately. Uh, and that, uh, you know, God was the one who ordered and shaped and restrained, uh, you know, the seas. And then as we, as we move through the rest of the class, we've been looking at things like the temple and the table and, you know, this idea of these other gods that have all been, that they thought, you know, existed and that these other nations worshipped. And you didn't, you didn't not worship idols because they didn't exist. You didn't, you didn't worship idols because they would destroy you. You know, they, they led to death, that only God was creative and strong enough to sustain the world. The one who created the world is the one who can sustain it. And these, these other gods were not, whatever they are, they're not creator gods, right? They're not the creator god. And so they, they cannot sustain the world that God has made. Now, hopefully this tonight, tonight's going to be a lot of fun and very rewarding for you. Because since you've been here for the whole class, uh, this is all, we're stacking a bunch of, we've been building a bunch of stuff up. And we're going to start stacking some big, big biblical themes on top of all of it. I think you'll start to see how a lot of these things are paying off and start to answer some of the, you know, the so what questions. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, two major biblical events. In fact, it would not probably be an overstatement to say uh, that these two events are the defining two events in the Old Testament. And that is the Exodus the exodus from Egypt, and then the exile, which is when uh, Israel is destroyed by Babylon. So let's begin with the exodus. We're going to spend a lot of time there, then we'll go over and, and talk about the exile, and we'll see, hopefully, how those two events really do frame the whole uh, story of the Old Testament of God's people, and it's going to really set the stage for who Jesus is and what Jesus does, which, of course, we're going to talk about next week. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 3, which is the first thing on your notes. Uh, now, what we have leading up to Exodus is, you know, in Genesis, God calls this man Abraham. We talked about him, right, and how he didn't necessarily know that this God who was talking to him was any different from any of the other gods, but he starts following him. He has children. They have children. And it's Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who, after an incident where he wrestles with God, gets his name changed to Israel, who has 12 sons. Uh, they all end up in Egypt. If you know the story of Joseph, that's all, that's all the end of Genesis. Okay? The book of Exodus opens up several hundred years later. There's a new regime ruling over Egypt. They have new pharaohs. And uh, what it says is that they don't remember Joseph. They don't remember uh, what God had done using Joseph to intervene and save them all from famine and things like that. And so... Uh, and so... Uh, where we are now, the, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Israel, are slaves in Egypt. And we hear, uh, and so there's a man named Moses that the story focuses on. You know, he's born, uh, he's hidden from the people who are trying to kill him, and he's ended up adopted, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the palace, but then he goes out and realizes, you know, he's not Egyptian, he's Hebrew. He sees how his people are treated. He ends up killing an Egyptian overseer and fleeing, going into hiding in the desert. So that's, that's all the first couple of chapters of Exodus, and that brings us up to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Moses is not exactly in hiding. He's just sort of like on the run. He's settled in a country called Midian, which is kind of out in the desert, you know, kind of over, over here. And uh, he is, he's married, and he's basically working for his father-in-law. 
And so uh, he's a shepherd, and he's out with his flocks, and he is at the bottom, at the base of a certain mountain, and he sees this miraculous thing. He sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's not being burned up. Uh, and so he decides, as all of us would, we're going to go check this out. So he goes over to the bush, and uh, I want to read, following from that in three, in five through fifteen of chapter three, what exactly is going on here. So uh, you can read along with me, or you can listen, whatever you like better. Uh, do, uh, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard the cries of distress because of the harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Moses protested. But if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Okay, now I want to pause here for just a moment before we read the last part. Here's what's going on. Right? Again, much like with Abraham, some weird God is speaking to Moses out of this bush. Right? And he's like, hey, I know that you're wanted for murder in Egypt. You didn't leave in good graces and all that. But I'm sending you back there, and you're basically going to go and take on the greatest empire that the world has ever known up until this point. That you're going to go tell them that I, the God who's talking to you out of this bush, uh, is, are, I'm not happy with him. And Moses is like, uh, who are you? <laughs> right? And that's exactly what he's saying, right? What, what, what God are you? Do, have I heard of you before? Do, I mean, what, you know, and it's, again, to us, that's like a weird question, right? Because we're monotheists, right? There's only one God. So if a bush is burning but not burning up and then someone talks to us out of it, like, we got a pretty good idea what's going on. But for Moses, that was a very normal, natural question, right? Who are you? What God is this? What, what is going on? And so what we're about to hear is we're about to hear God tell Moses who he is. And, and in a way, that's going to distinguish him from all of the other gods that are out there, including the gods of the Egyptians, right? Including all of these other random pagan deities that are around. And so here's what he says. God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, the name to remember for all generations. Now, pretty much across the board from the rabbis on down to today, scholars treat this particular revelation as God giving his name to his people. This is the moment that God discloses his identity to his to to the world um there and, and this is where you we've we've talked about this a little bit before but if you're ever reading your old testaments and you see the word lord in all capitals like it is at the very beginning don't come any closer the lord warned that's actually the word yahweh okay and again because in the jewish faith you don't pronounce the name of god you don't pronounce the name yahweh because of the third commandment don't take the name yahweh your god in vain it's like well if you just never say it you're definitely never going to take it in vain right safe safety first uh and so that what they will do is they substitute whenever they read the word uh, god's name in the text they would substitute the hebrew word adonai which is the word lord and it's again function just like we would the lord of a manor or the lord of a house or something right that's that that idea that i like ruling 
And so in our translations, how that came down to us is when we trans, just, it's just tradition, right? When we translate God's proper name, Yahweh, we write in Lord. But most of your translations, you'll probably see this, will write it in all capital letters. So it's a little bit tricky for you to keep in mind. But anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see Lord in all capitals, that's actually the word. And if you were reading Hebrew, you would see the word Yahweh right there which again is God's divine name. So in the first commandment, it's your problem. If you've, ever, if you've heard it enough times you haven't memorized, you probably think of it, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But what he's actually saying is, I am Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? See, again, he's saying, I'm this particular God. I have a name. I'm different from Ra or from Marduk or from Tiamat or any of these other gods that are out there. I'm, my, my name's Yahweh. I'm Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Here, I am Yahweh, the God of your ancestors the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the guy that told Abraham to move, right? I'm the one who wrestled with Jacob and renamed him Israel. That's who I am. And so (laughs) Moses is sent to Pharaoh to say, hey, this God that you've never heard of wants you to basically release all of your slave labor, right? So we need to talk about that that part of it because this is exactly what's happening here, right? What we have, but we, we typically, if we thought of the Exodus story, we've thought of this as a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, right? We've thought of this as, you know, Moses is standing there saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, and then there's a plague, and then Pharaoh says okay, and then he changes his mind, you know, back and forth, back, but it's, it's Moses, Pharaoh, Moses, Pharaoh, Moses, Pharaoh. What any ancient person would have understood with those ten plagues is that what was actually going on here was a battle among gods. And hopefully this is easier for you to think about now that we've had this class together. When we look at, think about how you look at the natural world. You are, you're out hiking in the woods, right? Or, okay, I think about, uh, how many of you know the, like the big, the scars that they have in the woods from the telephone poles? Like you're driving out in the mountains or something like that, and then you see this like big gash like cut through the tree lines, and it's where the telephone poles go. And you're like, oh, people have been here. Right? And it's, it's sort, of, sort of similar to when you're hiking and you're following a path in the woods and there's, there's this obvious like thing that's been disrupted and people have come in and made a trail or cut a gash for telephone lines. Or, you know, but you can, tell, you can tell when people have been around. There's Snickers wrappers on the grounds and things like that. Right? Okay. So we have this sense that the natural world basically is fine on its own. That if people just you know, vanished, all of us vanished off the surface of the planet, that within... I don't know, 10 or 20 years, those gashes in the woods would heal themselves. The paths would be overgrown and that nature would sort of return to an equilibrium. Any ecosystem that we've disrupted by overhunting or overfishing or something, you know, that, that basically if you just leave things alone, things will get back to the way they were supposed to be. Does that make sense? And the re- we, we have that assumption because we sort of look at the world as a machine that just runs on its own, right? It's like a thing you wound up and it just goes and, you know, you don't, you don't have to mess with it. You don't have to, like, keep it spinning or change its batteries or, like, it just, it just goes. And actually, if you just get out of the way, it works better than if you're interfering all the time, okay? There's, there's, a, there's a way we could describe that outlook on the world. And, and it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a technical phrase, but I think it'll help us a little bit. And that would be mechanistic positivism. Okay? Mechanical and positive. Those are the two root words. Mechanistic positivism. And the, what that means is that the world's basically a machine, and that it's basically going to be good. It's going to work towards goodness. Positive, right? It's going to get better on its own. How many of you have seen Jurassic Park? 
Most of us? That movie's awesome, right? Okay, good. Now, well, the theme of that movie is life finds a way, right? They put all these dinosaurs on the island, and they made sure they were all female so that they could control the population. And what happened? Life found a way. Nature, left to its own devices, even with the interference of people, figured out a way to just keep going and make more of itself and, and move on. And, and people were getting in the way of that. And then, of course, the, you know, people got eaten and stuff like that. So... <laughs> But that, that's the basic, that, that is a very modern outlook on the nature of nature, right? That it's basically okay on its own and that its natural state is good, fine. Like it runs by itself. It doesn't need your help, okay? In the ancient world, the natural state is not good, right? In the ancient world, the natural state is chaos and death. Right? That, that sea, that uncreated chaotic sludge, that, that terribleness. That's how an ancient person saw the world. They said, if you just left things on their own, it would be anarchy. It would be chaos. It would be terrible. It would be death and destruction. The only way the world is orderly, the only way the world is functional, the only way the world makes sense in a way that we can inhabit it and live in it relatively safely is through the God, whatever God I would worship, right? whatever culture I was in, through my God's constant intervention, right? My God is constantly ordering and shaping and maintaining the world constantly, uh, which, which is why my worship was so important, right? And we talked about this with the way the pagans viewed their gods, right? That they had to keep sacrificing and burning and feeding their gods so that their gods would maintain the world, would, would, would give them, uh, you know, uh, rain, rain and sun for their crops and make sure that locusts didn't come and eat their fields and, and make sure that they had kids and that the kids lived and, and on and on. Every single aspect of the world was constantly maintained by the constant intervention of their gods. This, uh, they would call it sustaining, right? The gods are actively sustaining the world because the natural state of the world is death. The sea, right? That's, that's, and again, think about how Genesis started, right? It's just a it's sea. And then God brings order and beauty and, and sense out of nothingness. Okay. So that gets us to the ten plagues. So Moses, who's a... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Is there a name for this entropy-based... Sure, uh, we could just call it, I don't know, uh, divine sustainability or something like that, right? As opposed to mechanistic positivism, we could call it death and disorder without, without God's presence. Yeah, I didn't actually think of a name for that. That's a good idea. I'll do that for the next round. What's the big idea 2.0? I'll have names for both of them. Um, Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, I appreciate it when people point out what I did wrong. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. No, I, I do appreciate it. Okay, so the ten plagues. You have Moses, who is a messenger from Yahweh, this God that, Moses, that Pharaoh's never heard of, right? And he comes into the court, and he, he claims in the name of this being who is a God from outside of Egypt's pantheon. I mean, they have their whole set of gods, right? Anubis and Ra and... All, you know, Horus, all, if you saw Stargate, all the jackal-headed, you know, the animal-headed gods and all that. Um, and in Pharaoh's worldview, worldview, this Yahweh God doesn't have any authority in Egypt, right? Because he's not an Egyptian God. He might have some authority wherever his land is, but certainly not in Egypt. And again, at this time, in this time, Egypt is the world superpower. They're more technologically advanced than anyone else. Their military is stronger. No one messes with Egypt at this time, right? And so, so Egypt's gods, again, by extension, are the most powerful gods. And basically, wherever they decide they want to rule, that's where they rule. And, of course, they rule by Egypt going and conquering that, 
right? And so, uh, so this this no name god that that Pharaoh's never heard of comes marching into his auditorium and, and claims authority, where Pharaoh is real convinced he doesn't have any authority. And so the showdown is actually, you know, Pharaoh basically rejecting Yahweh's authority to tell Pharaoh what to do. And so then these plagues begin, right? The Nile turns to blood. A swarm of uh, frogs, like an an, uh, incredible number of frogs swarm over the countryside. Dust turns into gnats and lice. Flies cover everything. The livestock gets diseased. Boils break out on people and on livestock. Yeah. You might have said this and I missed it, but I know Egypt had its whole set of gods. Yeah. But also, Pharaoh was considered a living god. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so if you remember when we talked about the Babylonian creation story and how humans were created to be slaves so the gods didn't have to work, the Egyptian story is something similar to that, but there's always an exception, right? All of the people are slaves except for the ruler, the king or the pharaoh or whatever, and they were considered this, like, bridge where they were actually considered a god or a son of a god, yes. And that that will come into play very importantly here in a moment. So, yeah, very, very much true. Pharaoh was not just human. He was also divine in some way, according to the Egyptian worldview, right? That's how they saw him. That's certainly how Pharaoh saw himself. Um, So we get the boils. We get thunder and hail, which, of course, destroys crops. We get locusts, which come and devour everything. Uh, We get darkness, where the sun is blacked out for days. And then the final plague is the death of the firstborn of every person in Egypt, or every family in Egypt, including Pharaoh's family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, again, to us, what this basically looks like is is God striking the Egyptians and throwing plagues at them, right? But I would submit to you, and this is where it gets a little bit fun, that we are missing something because of our sort of mechanistic positivist worldview, okay? So, for instance, take the locusts, right? We understand there aren't just, like, giant swarms of locusts, like, buzzing around out somewhere, you know, like, hanging out at a locust club or something like that. So when God sends locusts onto a certain area, he has to, like, create them. He can't just, like, put in a phone call and be like, hey, I want you guys over here, right? He has to create the locusts and then send the locusts to, to devour. And so we think, of that, we think of it that way. But that's not how an ancient person would have understood it, okay? Because for an ancient person, the natural state of the world is locusts and death. Locusts eat crops. They destroy. They're an agent of chaos, um, in fact, if, I, I, mean, I don't know how many of you are very familiar with Revelation, but when demons are, emerge from the pit, they look like locusts. That's, that's how much people hated locusts in the ancient world. Okay? Um, like we're like, what do demons look like? They probably look like locusts. Um, and again, if you were an agrarian person whose entire livelihood depended on your crops, if, if, if your family and everyone in your town would die if there was a swarm of locusts, that's not such a stretch of your imagination to imagine you would picture demons as locusts, right? So, so it makes sense. And so the way an ancient person would have seen what was going on with this swarm of locusts was not so much that, you know, some god is over here making locusts and, like, throwing them. It's more that the natural state of the world is creeping back in and, and, and that whatever god is sustaining, whatever god is sustaining your crops and keeping the locusts at bay is losing or gone or asleep or or something yeah. yeah and so i think back to when we talked about uh, mount carmel right and elijah on mount carmel with the prophets of baal that's when they're shouting and trying to get baal's attention that he's saying maybe he's asleep maybe he's 
taking a dump. Maybe he's on vacation. I mean, he's saying all the, like, he must be indisposed because apparently he can't hear you, right? Because he's not giving you what you want. And that's the same kind of thing here. What's really fascinating is that if you look, if you work through each of the 10 plagues, and Google has done this for you, so you can check it out later, but each of the plagues attacks specific Egyptian gods. There, are, there is a god of the Nile that keeps the Nile fresh and drinkable and pure, right? Because, it, because again, in the ancient world, rivers, civilization were built along rivers because you, you had to, right? Well, when the Nile turns to blood... Again, we're like, oh, that's kind of bad, but we got water filters and Britas and whatever. Like, we'd be okay. You know, for them, that was death. You know, frogs are fine, but not when there's a bajillion of them, and they're not supposed to be. And there was a, there's a frog-headed Egyptian god that was in charge of guess what? Frogs, you know? Again, locusts. There was a god who, whose whole job, the whole reason you worship this god, was to keep locusts away from your crops. Ra is the sun god. So when the sun gets blacked out, it's again, we would be like, oh, it's there's a cloud or like an eclipse. Like, we have naturalistic explanations for why the sun wouldn't shine. For them, it was like the God just didn't show up to work that day, right? Or, again, something actually more ominous from the Egyptian, per- or from the, for the, uh, the Egyptian perspective is that their gods are losing, that something is going on that they're losing. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, so, again, for the Egyptians, this is not just, like, bad luck, right? I mean, these are catastrophic, like, the entire foundations of your reality are being called into question. Because these, these gods that you've given your life to, that you've given your worship to, that you've depended on for every aspect of your health and prosperity, apparently can't deliver what they've been promising that they can deliver you. Because some little no-name god from nowhere you've ever heard of comes walking into court and, without any effort, wreaks havoc. And so as the plagues progress, the Egyptians become more and more and more certain that whoever this Yahweh God is, he isn't someone to be messed with. Um, Now, again, what I think is interesting about this is that this is the same kind of judgment that we saw in the flood story. In the flood story, we saw the human wickedness had become so great that God basically allowed the world to plunge back into uncreation. Right? That, that the seas came crashing back in and, and uncreated reality. And that's, that's what we see happening here. For an ancient person, for the sun to go dark, that's again, not an, that's not just an eclipse. That's like reality is coming apart at the seams. You know, when it's dawn, the sun comes up. That's what happens. Um, when, when locusts devour crops, when it's not season for locusts, when inexplicable boils break out all over people, the, these, are, these are the natural order of things. We would say it today, right? Like the laws of physics don't work anymore. You know, what would happen if you woke up on your ceiling and apparently, like, gravity just didn't affect you anymore? You know, you'd freak out. I mean, it'd be kind of cool for a few minutes, but after a while, you'd be like, ah, something's very, very wrong here, right? And I actually can't continue to function if this doesn't get fixed. And, and, and it would freak you out. It'd freak me out, at least, okay? Again, after a few, I'd enjoy it for a minute. Um, but for the Egyptians, that was, what, that was what was going on experientially for, for them as the fabric of reality was coming undone in these plagues. Okay, And then, of course, again, it all culminated in the attack on Pharaoh. Because this is a war of gods. This is, who, this is who is the true God. Does Yahweh have dominion in Egypt? And any ancient person would have said no. In fact, it's possible even a lot of the Israelites would have said no. Because they're in Egypt on Egypt's turf and in a polytheistic culture, like every god just kind of had their own. So, so just like the, the uh, Abraham and Isaac story was a big, like, aha moment for who God is. You know, God's not just a, a god like all these other gods that accept child. This is another aha moment. Oh, wow. 
Um, God isn't just another tribal God who has his own kind of land and keeps, keeps in his borders. He, he actually is God over everything. Like, whoa. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge claim. Uh, fortunately, it's substantiated by the plagues. I mean, that's the, that's the whole point, right? Is Yahweh, what Yahweh says goes, because Yahweh's the one that actually made everything. And you can worship whatever gods you want, but those gods can't protect you. Those gods can't give you life. And so if you follow them, the only thing that is there for you is death. That's the only, that's the only way your story ends. Yahweh is the only God who can bring you life. So, the firstborn is, of course, the continuation of the empire, right? It's Pharaoh's oldest son. And it, it matters that it wasn't just every firstborn in Egypt except for Pharaoh. Because, again, they didn't think Pharaoh was just another man. Right? They thought he was something more than just another man. And the plague of the firstborn demonstrates that, no, in fact, Pharaoh's no different from anyone else. He's human. He's mortal. He cannot protect. He, and again, remember, in the ancient world, king, household, world, all of it was stacked on each other. right? And so for the king to be mortal, for the king to be unable to maintain his own home, it also meant he was unable to maintain his own kingdom. And it ultimately meant that his claims to run the world were false and so the the again the 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 death of pharaoh's firstborn more than everyone i mean yeah everyone mourned that we you know the scriptures tell us that that everyone in egypt mourns right but pharaoh's child dying again rocked them to their foundations it made it called into question every claim egypt made to sovereignty which which was the point so what we get then is this is the Passover story, right? Where they sacrifice the, the lamb. The Hebrews sacrifice the lamb. They put the lamb on their doorsteps. The angel of blood or doorposts, angel of death, passes over their homes. And then they are allowed to leave Egypt. Pharaoh sends them and they flee. And so what they're fleeing is this post-plague Egypt that actually thematically looks a lot like Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Right In the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, everything was darkness and empty, and it was uncreated. And that's what, we've, that's what Egypt has sort of been uh, experiencing in the plagues, is this stripping away of all of the order and things that made sense of their world. Again, not, not, li- not literally, but thematically. And that's, certainly if you're an Egyptian, it feels like your entire world has fallen apart. Right? It feels like everything that, everything that you had that made sense of the world, everything that told you who you were and what your role in reality was, is gone. Because all of these gods that you've put your faith in have been shown to be false, right? And so their entire world has been flipped upside down. And the Israelites are fleeing this sort of like broken mess of a culture. And so we should expect some kind of a creation story thematically. We should expect that there's something new that's going to happen once they get out of Egypt. Does that make sense? Okay, because it's about to get real cool. So, of course, the first thing that happens is they get to the Red Sea, right? And they have to cross the Red Sea. So they're stuck. There's a big sea in between them and freedom. And Pharaoh, yet again, has changed his mind. He's furious, not only, of course, that his son has died and that his entire regime is crumbling, but now that he's let these slave population get the better of him. So he mounts his army, which is, again, the superior military force in the world the most advanced, the most technological, and he sends them after these, this ragtag band of slaves that's fleeing on foot. 
And they're trapped between this approaching army and the Red Sea. And so what happens then is uh, we get a creation story. So I've given you Exodus 14, 21 through 25. Uh, This is the story of Israel uh, crossing the Red Sea. And I want to point out a couple of really interesting things that to us are sort of like, eh, maybe. But for an ancient person reading this would would have been a big resounding gong or a big flashing light that says, hey... There's something cool going on here. So it says, Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. Now, remember that in Hebrew, the word wind and the word spirit are the same. It's the same exact word. So you could have, you could have translated this as a strong east spirit, which doesn't make any sense, which is why it's translated wind. Okay, but you could have. That's what the word is. And remember that in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, I think I put that for you just above that, it begins with waters and a wind from God or a spirit of God blowing over the water, hovering over the water. Okay, now again, for us, we're like, uh, are you sure? Like, uh, but I'm telling you, you read any of the rabbis, any of the ancient commentators, and like, they're like, oh, yeah, this is a callback to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We have a sea. That's sort of like in the way, right? I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and, and God, like God's doing something over it and it's wind slash, all, this, all, these, all these symbols are all right, all in the mix of that, okay? Then what happens? The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. Well, what was the third day of creation, right? The waters separate and dry ground appears. And it's the same, same language that's used, the same Hebrew words are being used there. Okay, and again, that's not, that's not an accident. That's all on purpose. Right? We're, we're, we're seeing a creation of something. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from the Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord, Yahweh, is fighting for them against Egypt. So again, what you have now, remember that not for Israel's creation story, right? But the other create Egypt's Babylon's, all the other creation stories surrounding Israel, creation was always combat, right? There was a God fighting against the seas and the enemies to create. And what do you have here in the middle of the Red Sea? You have God fighting against the enemies of his people in the middle of the sea to to create, to create something. Obviously not a world, because there already is a world. They're in the world, right? But something, something is being birthed here. Something is being created. And all of this imagery is very, very intentional. The way they're choosing to tell the story of the Red Sea, the way they're choosing to tell the story of the Ten Plagues is very, very much on purpose. So what is being created here is a new nation, a people of God, right? And we get echoes of world, and we get echoes of body, because think about it, these, these bodies that are fleeing across the Red Sea are slaves, right? But it's sort of like, basically, once they get to the other side of the sea, they're not slaves anymore, right? They, they, have, they have a different physical identity. They're not, they're not owned. They're not controlled. They're not commanded. They're free. They're, they're owners of their own bodies again. So there's even, some, there's even some hints of that going on here. But mainly, slaves are becoming free. And the, the culmination... Of the, constru- of the Torah, of what's all about to happen is the construction of the, of the tabernacle. So we've still got nation, body, world, temple, all, you know, it's all stacked here. And there's just echoes of it going all over the place. We miss a lot of that, 
But but again, the ancient they they love they love this passage for that reason. Um, for that's because that's what the Red Sea was for them. It was kind of like the 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 beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, probably both, right? So let's talk about the creation of the nation. We have we have we have the idols, and the idolatry, and the war of the gods, which isn't really a war because Yahweh wins very easily. <laughs> and then we have and we have the creation story of the crossing of the sea and the wind blowing over the waters and the emerging of the dry land and the, the battling against the enemies, right? And now we have the creation of a nation. So they they get across the Red Sea. And Moses, Moses takes them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, this ragtag group of slaves is going to become something new. They're going to become a people. And again, there's a difference, we understand this, right, between a people and a mob. Right? People are organized around a particular something. Doesn't really matter. You know, we, we have all kinds of things that people organize around, probably Kroger cards all the way up to voting booths and things like that. So um, here, though, particularly at Mount Sinai, there's this really cool thing that's about to happen. Let's look at it together. It's in Exodus 19, 1 through 8. It says, Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord, Yahweh, called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob and announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the peoples on earth belong to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Okay? Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the nations. If you will obey me and keep my covenant, I will make, for you, I will make you into a kingdom of priests. Okay? If you will obey my covenant then I will make you my people. It's, it's an agreement, right? Do you want to do this or not? Here are my terms. I will give you my covenant if you will be my people. Deal? So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything that the Lord, that Yahweh, had commanded them. And all the people responded together. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. So, again, we have a transaction being handled here, right? God says, okay, you all saw what I did, right? I did parting of the Red Sea and battling the Egyptians and all that stuff. That's the kind of God I am. If you will follow me, then, you'll, then you can be my people. And the people say, yeah, deal. We want to be your people. Give, give us the terms. Let us, know what we ha- let us know what that looks like. And so then Moses, Moses then uh, right after this is when they receive the Ten Commandments, okay, which again for the Israelites basically was the, the, the capstone or the summary of the entire what we call the law, they, what they would call the Torah, okay? And what's really fun, you can read this later on your own, but um, God actually verbally speaks the Ten Commandments to them. They're, they're on the, you know, he's at the top of the mountain and it's all like cloudy and smoky and thundery and lightning and scary, the people are camped around the base of the mountain. And so Moses brings the answer back, and God says, okay, tell the people in three days, I'm going I'm to give them the terms, right? And then the terms end up being the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know, don't have any other gods, and don't build idols, and all this stuff. And the, the people are so terrified by the fact that by hearing God's voice audibly, that they go to Moses, and they're like, okay, um, maybe take half a step back. Can you just always talk to God from now on and just tell us what he says? We trust you. Uh, and so God says, okay, you know, that's, that, that's, what, that's the way you want. Okay, but the Ten Commandments are received verbally from God. And then Moses goes up and gets the, the fine print, basically. 
Okay. So what we call the law, the Jewish people call the Torah. And it, it, Torah can actually also be translated as way or instruction, but it's exactly that. It's, it's the terms of the covenant. It's, it's God saying, okay, if you want to be my people, this is what my people look like. This is what my people do. This is how my people behave. So this is how, if you're going to honor this covenant, if you're going to honor this agreement, then here's what you need to do. What's fascinating about that is that the Torah, especially, again, the Ten Commandments being the summary of the Torah, were spoken by God. And again, we have a God who brought the world into being through speaking. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And so God, in a similar way, calls his people into being, calls his people in, and in, turns, a, turns a bunch of slaves into a people through speaking to them. Right through through, the, through his divine word, and so the the Jewish people very much saw the Torah as intimately connected to uh, the the creation story. Right, that that the the, the 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 God's creative power, his whatever how you know when God says stuff, it happens. That that creative energy is the Torah. It's the same thing for them, and so the the same way that God speaks the world into being. When we receive the Torah, God speaks life into us. What was the state of the creation story at this point? Like all of the people, they knew the story was like oral tradition? Yeah, it would have had to have been oral tradition because right. there's certainly Moses, maybe a few other handful of people are literate at this point. So yeah, it would have very much been oral tradition circulating. Um, which again, we think that's, we get all freaked out by that, but in non-literate cultures, oral traditions are incredibly reliable, much more reliable than most of our smart technology. So, um, okay, so that kind of gets us to the end of the Exodus story because it's, it's once they leave from Sinai, they are a people. They have a tabernacle, right? In fact, the, the Exodus story, the end of the book of Exodus is the construction of the tabernacle and at the very end of Exodus, God like moves in and the presence of God dwells among his people and like we're done here you know we have a people who have a god and so um okay so any questions about exodus we're going to come back and kind of do some stuff with it but i want to get over to exile also yeah mike go ahead could you make a comment on the golden calf episode oh sure yeah yeah so uh what happens is moses is up on the top so moses okay so the people talk to or God talks to the people they're terrified right and they they actually say if he speaks to us again it's a there's a good possibility we'll die so just please don't let that happen again Moses tells God that's what they want God says fine why don't you just come up the mountain Moses is like hey everyone I'll be right back and then he goes up the mountain into the like fire storm and smoke and all of that with the God who when he spoke to them they thought they might die and then he just doesn't come back for a long time he's actually up there for 40 days Okay, which is, 40 days is actually a, an Old Testament idiom of saying, like, we're not really sure how long, it's a really long time. Um, so, so, like, he's just gone, and he didn't say, I'll be back in 40 days. He didn't say, I'll be back in 50 days. He didn't say, I'll be back in 10 days. He was just like, don't leave until I get back. And so, you know, <laughs> they pretty quickly are like, anyone think Moses might not come back? Anyone think that, like, he should... Parties! Yeah, I mean, well, not exactly. I mean, right, anyone think he just died? Hmm? We gotta figure. We gotta figure something out. So they, they go to Aaron and they convince Aaron, his brother, who's kind of like his sidekick. You know, um, they're like, "Hey, we probably no offense, we think your brother's dead, um, and so we want you to 
to make a god for us. Because that's what, that's what they're missing, right? And, they, and, and when you don't have a god, you don't have protection. You don't have, I mean, you're, you're on your own, right? And so in, in the cultures that surrounded uh, Abraham, like the Canaanite cultures that he would have been interacting with all the time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, uh, their gods were often represented as bulls or more often as riding bulls. And so like we even have in some, you can Google image search some of them or find some museum artifacts and stuff, but like a lot of Canaanite uh, iconography that we've uncovered is very bull related. And so basically... Uh, as far as uh, this is as far as you know scholars can figure out uh, Aaron builds the best kind of god he knows how to figure out how to build which is an idol uh, which is rule number two that they all agreed to 40 days ago um, not you know not to do and so Moses is up with this is all in Exodus 32 is another real mind bendy passage if you want to read it Moses is up on the mountain getting the law and God goes hey Moses you never guess what everyone's doing they're breaking rule number two. He's like, so I'm, I'm furious. They, they haven't, this covenant hasn't even lasted three months yet. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to start over. You're my new Abraham. You know, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand. And Moses is basically like, God, that will ruin your street cred. <laughs> Everyone's going to say, you're the God who just brings people out in the desert to kill them. That's, that's really not the reputation that you want to cultivate. And so... Uh, God decides not to kill the Israelites, to have mercy on them. And so uh, Moses, that's when Moses comes down. And then when he sees it for himself is when he breaks the tablets. He's, you know, furious. And so uh, he goes down and takes care of, uh, he kill, they kill a bunch of the people who had been leading in the idolatry. And so for some reason, Aaron gets off the hook. I'm not really sure why. Uh, but... Uh, then he goes back up the mountain and gets another set of tablets, and that's that's tablet two. So, so and the the first tablets were uh, according to the text they were written by God's hand, and the second set of tablets Moses carved. So we lost the ones that God wrote, unfortunately. Not like we have the other ones anyway. So I guess it doesn't matter that much. But uh, those are the ones that ended up in the Ark of the Covenant. So yeah, do you have a question, Nick? Well, just like a comment. So like we're talking about this creation analogy, yeah. right? And the last thing that God talks about. So like. God is like speaking the covenant into being, yeah. right? Creating a nation. Mm-hmm. The last thing that he talks about is the Sabbath. Yes. Which is cool because like, because mm-hmm. he rested. Yeah. And now he's telling him. And, that's, and that's exactly when Exodus ends and they get the, the tabernacle finished and they have it all set. I mean, that's exactly the right. idea is we're, we're sort of reenacting that seventh day, right? We're, we're reenacting the world as it should be, God dwelling with his people, everything, everything good. And we know that's not that yet, but it's going, it's going to be there. And of course, the other big thing is that they understand too that they're still in the wilderness, Right, that they're not actually in the land that God promised them. Because you, for to be a real nation, you need people, you need a deity, and you need land. And at this moment in the story, there's still nomads living in tents in the desert, being sustained entirely by God. Right? I mean, if he doesn't give them water, they don't drink. If he doesn't feed them, they don't eat. And so they, I mean, it takes them, you know, they, they go to the edge of the promised land, and then they send in the spies, and the spies come back, and they're like, this is too much. So the people doubt even though it's been a couple of, you know, it's been, it's been a short amount of time and they've seen all these miracles and they're, they're saying, like, we feel like grasshoppers compared to them. They have these huge fortified cities. We're living in tents. Like, are you kidding me? And so as, and it depends on who you ask, they, they perceived it as a punishment that God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it wasn't actually for 40 years. It was actually until everyone over the age of 10 had died. And it ended up being 40 years. Okay? The reason for that, again, what you get from a lot of the rabbis is that God was raising up a generation of people who had grown up free. 
all of those older people, the reason that they were afraid to enter the promised land is because they still thought like slaves. And of course, slaves don't think that they can win, right? But if you're young enough, then all, I mean, think about all those people, right? 10 and under, most of their lives, by the, by the time those people are 50 and on down, if you only ate when God gave you food. You only drank when God provided water. And so they lived their entire lives. You know, there was, I heard someone earlier saying, right, their clothes don't wear out. All, all, these, all these unbelievable things. But that's, that's normal for them. Like nor, God's immediate, everyday, ongoing provision became run-of-the-mill for them. And so when they get to the edge of the promised land 40 years later, like Joshua's having a hard time holding them back. You know, they're so, they're, they can't wait to get in there because they know that God's going to continue to provide for them the way God has been providing for them. So it's, and so some of the prophets later, when Israel is sinning uh, and idolatrous and all that stuff, uh, they, talk about, they talk about the wilderness as a time of wooing and of God romancing his people. And that what God is basically doing is taking these slaves and teaching them to trust him. So again, that's why I said they perceived it as punishment, but, but later generations, like one of the prophets says, uh, through, through the prophet, God says, oh, how I long to return you to the wilderness, to woo you again. So it's this really romantic kind of view of what it was when it was just them and God, and they had to rely fully on him for everything. And they the deep trust and love they learned for him, and how, how when they got into the promised land, there was no thought of idolatry. They wouldn't think of worshiping anyone but God. And God missed that, you know, so. Okay. Which brings me to the point, we're in the promised land now, right? We settle the promised land, uh, we get some kings, we have three kings that are all pretty good, and then we get, so we get Saul, we get David, we get Solomon, who under David and Solomon's reign, Israel becomes huge, they have the, they're the biggest they've ever been politically, they have an incredible amount of power and wealth, everything's going great, uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne, he's kind of an idiot, and listens to all of his friends. And, it's, and, and so, so what's happening is they have some people working and they want uh, basically better working conditions. And Rehoboam has just taken over the throne. And his friends say, hey man, they're just trying to exploit you. Like if you give them what they want now, they'll think you're a sissy king who can't stand up for himself. You should triple their workload and make them thank you for it. So Rehoboam does that. He's like, you can't tell me what to do. Uh, now, now you have, you know, and basically sounds a lot like Pharaoh in the Egypt story. Uh, and so they cause a civil war and the kingdoms fragment. Uh, there's, uh, they split the 10 northern tribes separate and they continue to be called the nation of Israel. And the two southern tribes become the nation of Judah. And so that's all after Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, David's grandson. Um, he causes the civil war. And from that point forward, that's, David and Solomon are around 1,000 B.C.-ish, like somewhere around in there. It's a little bit hard to date them, but that's, that's ish. You're in the right, 1,000 to 900, you're in the right territory. Um, and so for, for after that, forever, there's not a unified kingdom, okay? The north, so, so here's, I have this nice big map of, it's terribly drawn, but hopefully you can idea. Mediterranean Sea here, this is like Greece. This is modern-day Turkey. Here's Egypt down here at the Nile River. Red Sea, the Sinai Peninsula. Here you have Jerusalem and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River connecting them. Over here, going into the Persian Gulf, you have the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, you have Babylon down here, and you have Nineveh up here, which is the capital of Assyria. So um, that'll give you just a, a little bit of an idea. And that's you know, not the other, other water up there. It's not important. So um, what I always missed when I was uh, reading the Bible Particularly like the kings and the prophets and all the kings and Samuel and prophets and all that is like that this is a political reality that these people live in. You know, they were nations and, and they had alliances and treaties and all the kinds of things that we have today. 
Uh, and, and I just, you know, I, for some reason when I was reading the Bible, I had to be spiritual, not political, and I, whatever. Uh, it helped me a lot to understand that, no, uh, just like we have nations today that battle over territory and all of that kind of stuff, that's the way it worked back then. And it just so happens that Israel is right in the middle of the crosshairs of all these different major empires. Their land is pretty sweet, pretty good. Not only is it, especially in the north, it's pretty fertile and pretty good for you know crops and all that kind of stuff. But again, they connect everything. I mean, they're that little strip of land. This is all desert out here, and no one likes to be out there. Um, and so like right over here where it's really fertile along the coast was really good for trade routes and things like that. And so Israel was constantly trapped between major empires. Okay, Egypt obviously being one of the big ones. But Assyria came to prominence um, after the time of David. But they were the major, major, major empire around the time of Amos and some of the early stuff in Isaiah. Right? And so when you read those guys, you really get a sense of the pressure that's getting put on, on the northern kingdom. Um, and what actually ends up happening in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay? And the way the Assyrians conquered, they were fairly brilliant empire runners. They would take about half of the population and forcibly relocate them and scatter them all over the empire. And then they would take a comparable number of people from all over the empire and forcibly relocate them into their newly conquered province. So what that meant was you were, instead of living next to a bunch of people that worshipped the same God as you and spoke the same language and had the same worldview and, and all that kind of stuff, you were the bunch of people that you couldn't really communicate with. And you didn't trust, and you didn't want to trust, and know anything like that. And that took, you know, two to three generations to kind of, you know, intermarry and get all that out of your system and get everyone unified. And by that time, you'd been living under imperial rule, and you just thought of yourself as a Syrian. So it was actually really a brilliant way to make sure that you, peoples that you conquered didn't rise up later and, and try to rebel. Um, not, not nice, but brilliant. Um, so that's what happened in the northern kingdom. And actually, that's where, uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, that's where the Samaritans come from. The Samaritans are who's left over by the time we get to the time of the New Testament of these people who had all intermarried. Uh, and, and incidentally, also, that's why the ten northern tribes are called the lost tribes, because their tribal identities are gone. Um, they, they lost. They, there's no, you can't find someone today who's of the tribe of Simeon. That, that, that tribe just doesn't exist anymore uh, because it, got, you know, it just got lost. Uh, so, so did nine of the other tribes. The, the, two, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which made up, made up, made up the, the nation of Judah, are the only two tribes that can still trace their tribal identity. So Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin. And they knew that, and they are very proud of that. Paul, in fact, boasts about it several times in his, in his letters. So, Now, the other major empire was Babylon, of course. They came a little bit later than Assyria. But after the northern kingdom was conquered, Judah was, <laughs> Judah was in even worse shape, okay? Because they had the Assyrian Empire pressuring them. They had the Egyptian Empire. You can imagine they're being sandwiched between Egypt and Assyria, right? Both of them really want this prime primo location, right? And then this new threat arises in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire uh, grows. It becomes more powerful. It starts conquering other, other places. And then around 609 B.C., so... A little over 100 years after Assyria conquered Israel, Babylon conquered Assyria and became the dominant force in the ancient Near East. And then only a few years after that, in 605, they defeated Egypt. 
and drove Egypt back down into their lands. And during this whole period of world history, Judah is just trying to stay alive. They're just trying not to get conquered. And the way they keep doing that is by making alliances with all the kingdoms around them and with Egypt and with Assyria over and over and over and over. And they keep hoping that those will protect them. Of course, they don't. And so eventually, it's just Judah and Babylon. It's not even a fight. So in 597, the king who's ruling at the time dies. His son succeeds him. Uh, they're, they're fighting Babylon. The king dies in the siege of Jerusalem. His son succeeds him, immediately surrenders. Is I think, I, if I remember right, he's, he has his eyes put out and is like made to walk behind the, the chariots and stuff all the way to Babylon in chains, paraded with his entire family. And then Babylon installs a puppet king named Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. So they let Judah stay in existence, but it's with a puppet king. Now, like less than 10 years later, that puppet king also rebels. He thinks he's got a sweet deal with backing from some other people. He rebels. And that time Babylon's like, all right, we've had it. Enough of this. So they come in, they lay siege to the city again. And this time in 586 BC, when they conquer Judah, they decimate it. They destroy the entire city of Jerusalem and they completely destroy the temple. Completely annihilated. Now, during this entire period, going all the way back to when Israel, the northern kingdom, is worried about Assyria. This is when, this is when you have the prophets. Okay, all of the prophetic books that we have come from, come from that period, then a little bit after the exile. Right? But this is when the prophets are active. And their message, it's, if you just read them straight through, it gets tedious. Because they're just saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Which is, don't trust foreign armies and foreign gods. The only one you need to keep you safe is Yahweh. Quit putting your trust in foreign kings. Quit following foreign gods. Don't put your trust in foreign kings. Don't trust the foreign gods. Quit following the foreign kings. Quit making treaties with foreign kings. Why are you trusting the foreign kings? Stop it. Knock it off. Only follow Yahweh. Over and over and over and over and over. But obviously they didn't listen. And so instead of trusting in the creator God who at one point in history had showed his incomplete dominance over the gods of the other empires, right? Instead of doing that, they put their trust in the, these alliances that they were making with, with Assyria. With the, I mean, can, can you imagine what it took for the Jewish people to make an alliance with Egypt? With Egypt, the, the country who had enslaved them, right? I mean, that's That's crazy. With Assyria, the, the people who had conquered their brothers and sisters to the north. And yet, instead of trusting in God, they were rushing to all of these other powers. Saying, hey, we'll pay you. We'll do anything if you'll keep us safe. It, I mean, it's, again, it's almost, it's almost inconceivable, which is actually exactly how God describes it. And he's like, it, 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 just, it boggles my mind why you're doing this. I don't understand. I don't understand. So... Here's what I want to do. I want to, uh, there's a couple of prophets who are, who are writing just before and then immediately after the exile that I want to look at with you. Because what I want to do, for the, I mean, we, we have a good amount of time left, but I really want to try to help us feel the cultural weight of the exile. I want us to feel how wholly devastating it was for them. 
And so uh, on the very last page of, the, of your handout, um, there is, it's the front and back. It's, it's a very long passage from Jeremiah. Uh, there's an extra one right there between uh, you guys if, if anyone else needs one. Uh, I'm going to read it out loud. You guys can follow along or you can just listen, whichever you want to do. But um, if, you, if you want to, uh, anytime you see some, I'll read it pretty slowly. But anytime you see something that refers to like the Exodus or to particular like to politics or to uh, false gods, like other gods, just underline it or circle it or something like that. Just kind of point it out. Um, because I think you'll really hear here how for Jeremiah, this prophet who's warning them that the exile is coming if they're not careful... Uh, all of these things, this, these, it, was, it was religious, it was political, it was everything, all wrapped up together. And I think, hopefully no one in here's sensibilities are too delicate, because it gets a little bit shocking towards the end. You're like, wait, God said that? But yes, God said that. Okay, we're going to read it together. So, um, so here we go. The Lord gave me another message. This is in chapter 2, so it's very early. It's a very early message, right? He said, go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. You can hear that Exodus language, right? Even through the wilderness you followed me. Right? In those days, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. All who harmed his people were declared guilty and disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Listen to this, or listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or travels? And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west, look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone heard of such a thing as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they're not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can't hold water at all. Why has Israel become a slave? Why has he been carried away as plunder? Strong lions have roared against him, and the land has been destroyed. The towns are now in ruins, and no one lives in them anymore. Egyptians marching from their cities of Memphis and Tephanis have destroyed Israel's glory and power. And you have brought this upon yourselves by rebelling against the Lord your God, even though he was leading you on the way. What have you gained by your alliances with Egypt and your covenants with Assyria? What, what good to you are the streams of the Nile or the waters of the Euphrates River? Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. 
You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken to you. Long ago, I broke the yoke that oppressed you and tore away the chains of your slavery. But still you said I will not serve you. On every hill and under every green tree you have prostituted yourselves by bowing down to idols. But I was the one who planted you, choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. How did you grow into this corrupt wild vine? No amount of soap or lye can make you clean. I still see the stain of your guilt. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. You say, that's not true. I haven't worshipped the images of Baal. But how can you say that? Go and look in any valley in the land. Face the awful sins you have done. You're like a restless female camel, desperately searching for a mate. You're like a wild donkey sniffing at the wind at mating time. Who can restrain her lusts? Those who desire her don't need to search for her. She goes running to them. When will you stop running? When will you stop panting after other gods? But you say, save your breath. I'm in love with these foreign gods and I can't stop loving them now. Israel is like a thief who feels shame only when he gets caught. They, their kings, officials, priests, and prophets, all are alike in this. To an image carved from a piece of wood, they say, you're my father. To an idol chiseled from a block of stone, they say, you are my mother. They turn their backs on me, but then in times of trouble, they cry out to me, come and save us. But why not call on these gods you have made? When trouble comes, let them save you if they can, for you have as many gods as there are towns in Judah. Why do you accuse me of wrongdoing? You're the ones who have rebelled, says the Lord. I have punished your children, but they did not respond to my discipline. You yourselves killed your prophets as a lion kills its prey. Oh, my people, listen to the words of the Lord. Have I been like a desert to Israel? Have I been to them a land of darkness? Why then do my people say, at last we are free from God. We don't need him anymore. Does a young woman forget her jewelry? Does a bride hide her wedding dress? Yet for years on end, my people have forgotten me. How you plot and scheme to win your lovers. Even an experienced prostitute could learn from you. Your clothing is stained with the blood of the innocent and the poor, though you didn't catch them breaking into your houses. And yet you say, I've done nothing wrong. Surely God isn't angry with me. But now I will punish you severely because you claim not to have sinned. First here, then there. You'll flit from one ally to another asking for help. But your new friends in Egypt are going to let you down, just as Assyria did before. In despair, you will be led into exile with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected the nations you trust. They will not help you at all. If a man divorces a woman and she goes and marries someone else, he won't take her back again, for that would surely corrupt the land. But you have prostituted yourself with many lovers, so why are you trying to come back to me, says the Lord. Look at the shrines on every hilltop. Is there any place you have not been defiled by adultery with other gods? You sit like a prostitute beside the road waiting for a customer. You sit alone like a nomad in the desert. You have polluted the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. That's why even the spring rains have failed. For you are a brazen prostitute, completely shameless. Yet you say to me, Father, you have been my guide since my youth. Surely you won't be angry forever. Surely you can forget about it. So you talk. But you keep on doing all the evil you can. Okay. Take it. Let, let it soak in a little bit. He's pretty mad. Uh, I'm curious. What 
What stuck out to you in that passage? <laughs> yes. Yeah, God is clearly in a lot, uh, very angry, right? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, okay, there's a, a good amount of sexual language in there, right? But again, that's all, what that is is idolatry language. If the, if the covenant between God and Israel is pictured as a marriage covenant between a groom and a bride, then it's, it's adultery language. Saying, saying that you've worshipped other gods is like you, you, you're committing adultery. And so that's all, that's all over and over and over again. That's what that language is talking about. So, good. Anything else? Idols on hilltops. Okay. Shrines on hilltops. Yeah. Why does that stick out? Well, it reckons back to Moses is going up on the mm-hmm. hill to talk to God. And yeah. They have other gods on other hills. Yeah. Yep. Good. What else? I think something that stuck out to me was just how, um, again, for God, you get this real sense of betrayal. Like, look at all I d- I've done for you for all this time. And this is how, like, I, like, he's genuinely not just hurt, but, like, confused. Like, I, like, I don't understand. I don't understand why you would do this. I can't, like, I've, I've gone over and over and over it in my mind, and it just, there's no way that it makes sense. You know, after, after everything I've done for you, after all I've cared for you, like, how can you continue to do this? You know, and, and I, there, there doesn't seem to be much uh, remorse, right? Much, I, and again, that, that last bit there, you know, you've been my guide since my youth. Surely you're not going to be angry forever. Surely you can forget about it. And then he even says, well, that's what you're saying, but you're not, you're not acting any differently. You're, there's, no, there's no repentance. There's no change in your behavior. You know, so like, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't see it anywhere. Uh, it just sounds like more talk. I'm sure this wasn't written about today. <laughs> well, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's lots of like, slavery and exile language again, mm-hmm. so it's just right back to where they were before yeah. the covenant was even there. Yeah. Like, it's just... yeah, and you heard, right, the shifting alliances, right? Like your new friends in Egypt are going to let you down just like your, or your friends in Assyria did, right? I mean, you can, you can I mean, again, that, that lets you place this historically. Right, this is between when it, when Assyria was conquered and when Egypt got conquered. Egypt hasn't been conquered yet, and so Assyria failed. So now they're cozying up to Egypt. Egypt again of all places, right? And and God says through Jeremiah, I got news for you. They're going to fail too. You keep instead of returning to me, you keep turning to all of these other places. And there's only one way this is going to end for you, and it's with exile. So let's look at let's look at what finally ended up happening. So one of the most one of the weirdest one of the most inter- I was going to say most interesting, but he's definitely weird too. Uh, exilic prophets was a man named Ezekiel. Okay, uh, he was. I, I think I would have loved hanging out with him for a day if I could speak Hebrew, if he could speak English, um, you know, so we could communicate. But uh, I think he would have been really fun to hang out with because he's just a, like his book is strange. You read it compared to any of the other prophetic books, and he is, he's got visions, and he, does, he acts out a bunch of his prophecies, um, all kinds of weird stuff. Like there's one where God tells him to go get some human dung, human feces, poop, and cook a meal over it because that's gross. Um, like you can do it. You know, it burns, but it's, it's gross. And, but he was like, I want you to do that. And when people are like, why are you eating poop food? He's like, because this is gross as your sin is to God. Right? I mean, he's like, like acting out. And so Ezekiel's like, that's really, really, really gross. Can I use 
anything else, and God's like, fine, you can use cow dung. And so, like, but I mean, that's just, like, that's in Ezekiel, and that's weird. Like, that's a weird thing. You know, that's just the kind of book Ezekiel is. He's, he's very strange. He also has all these really crazy visions. Um, in fact, the book opens, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 opens with a vision of God's divine chariot. And I, I was fascinated with this when I was a little kid because I was obsessed with space. And I would like, I just knew that there were aliens. So I read like all these books on UFOs and stuff like that. And so for real, I'm not making this up. A lot of UFOologists, which are people who study UFOs because apparently you can make money doing that. Um, a bunch of UFOologists believe that in Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel sees a UFO because of this thing. It's, it's this, and what he's actually seeing, though, is it's God's divine chariot. Okay, and so he gets, it's the reason I think it's because it has these big spinning wheels, you know, like a chariot does, that are on fire, because that's awesome. And then um, uh, with each of the wheels is a cherubim, which is some kind of weird angelic creature. And some, they have the ones with the four, like one looks like a man, and one looks like an ox, and one looks like an eagle. Like, so they all look like different animals, and they're flying, and they're these big fiery wheels. And so modern day people are like, well, that's clearly a UFO. But uh, clearly, right? Yeah, that's what we all know. That's what UFOs look like. Um, and so for, for Ezekiel, though, this was a vision of God's divine chariot. And that's interesting and that's important because it comes back. Okay. So um, Ezekiel was one of the group of people who was exiled in that initial conquest of Babylon when they didn't destroy the city, but they just installed the puppet government. He was one of the people who was taken at that point. So even though Jerusalem's still standing... Even though the temple's still standing and operating, and even though there are still people living in Jerusalem, Ezekiel is living in Babylon as a captive, okay, living in exile. And, and in, uh, in 59, that, that was in 597 B.C. So in 592, about five years later, and about five years before they destroyed the temple and destroyed the city and all of that, Ezekiel, is, Ezekiel has a prophetic vision where he's taken in the spirit and God brings him back to Jerusalem and to the temple. And he witnesses uh, in chapters 10 and 11 something that was truly earth-shattering, world-universe-shattering. Okay, so I want to read it with you. Uh, again, you can read the whole thing later if, if this is super interesting to you, but this is enough to get the point across. When the cherubim moved, those are those crazy creatures, the wheels, the big fiery wheels of the chariot moved with them. When they lifted their wings to fly, the wheels stayed beside them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stopped. When they flew upwards, the wheels rose, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Then, now remember that in the temple, God's phys- there was this like physical aspect or attribute of God that lived in the temple. That was in between two golden cherubim that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, that was called the mercy seat. That was, where, that was where the physical presence of God lived inside the Holy of Holies, inside the holiest place in the temple. And, and that was called the glory of God, or sometimes, sometimes they called the Shekinah glory of God. But whenever they talked about the glory of God, it was, this, it was this like physical manifestation of God in the temple. Okay, So then the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, right, moved out from the doors of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Then the cherubim lifted their wings and rose into the air with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Then the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east, which is the Mount of Olives. Afterward, the Spirit of God carried me back again to Babylonia, to the people in exile there. And so ended the vision of my visit to Jerusalem. Now, what just happened? God left. God left. 
Now try to put yourself, everything you know, everything we've been talking about this whole class, put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of one of those ancient Israelites. How do you feel? And what, what, what does this mean? Yeah. Doomsday is exactly the right word for this feeling. This is apocalyptic. This is as apocalyptic as it gets. Because again, the temple is not just a temple, right? Symbolically, it's the world, it's the nation, it's even the body. So for God to leave the temple, God is leaving his people. He's leaving his world. He's abandoning it to its enemies. So we're not surprised that a handful of years later, everything is destroyed. That they're wiped off the face of the map. That there is no Israel anymore. This is a cataclysmic, catastrophic event. And... For any other nation that's ever existed, if this had happened, it would have meant that they were just... I mean, we've lost peoples to the annals of history because of these kinds of events. It's entirely possible that Israel could have, maybe even should have, been lost to the annals of history. That, they should, that we should not talk about them anymore. Because every, everything that defined them as a people was destroyed. Everything, everything... Everything was gone. And we talked, if you remember, all the way back to the very first class, we talked about the fact that this was actually the time that things started getting written down. Right? That the, for all these oral traditions, they were like, oh no, like we don't have, we don't have, a, we don't have a culture anymore. We don't have a society anymore. We don't have structures in place that preserve our character as a people. And so it's actually in the wake of this that we get what we look at today as our Bible. Because it had to be written down. Because if it wasn't, it was gone. Right? And so this is, uh, scholars talk about this as a, as a major transition. Because up until this point, worship of Yahweh was centered around a temple. And after this point, worship of Yahweh is centered around a text. What, what we call our Bibles. Right? The, 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 the Bible becomes the identity of the people. Because the temple can't be anymore. It has to be the texts. It has to be the stories and the traditions that were collected and carefully preserved and carefully passed. That's the only way that these exiles can now be a people. And and that makes them very unique in the ancient world. Because they figured out how to survive without a temple. And again, for us looking back today as Christians, we have no problem confessing that that was the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Right, preserving and protecting God's people, even in the midst of an abandoned covenant. Right, that even even when, even when God leaves the temple, God didn't leave the temple. Right, that somehow even still God maintained His people and maintained His presence among them. So, let's look very quickly at the promise of restoration we see, because later in Ezekiel, fortunately, that's early in Ezekiel. It's not all a downer book, though. That is certainly like earth shattering. Right, much later. Despite all evidence to the contrary, Ezekiel assures God's people that God is not, in fact, done with them. 
And so he, Yahweh sends Ezekiel another vision. This one is a new temple. And so if you read the whole thing, I think it starts on like chapter 38 or 40 or something like that. It's, it's all about the new temple that's going to be built. Ezekiel has this amazing vision of this new temple. But there's one part in particular that is cool for us to read tonight, but then also will be very cool for what we're going to do with it as we go through the rest of this class. So this is, he's, he's walking around. He's basically getting a grand tour of the new temple. That's sweet. So it says, in my vision, the man who's guiding him around, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the northern gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance, which again, facing towards the Mount of Olives, right? There I could see the water flowing out through the south side of the east gateway. He asked me, have you been paying attention? Guy, he calls him son of man. It's like, fella, you've been watching? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. Again, the river that's coming out of the new temple. He said to me, this river flows east through the desert and into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river, and the leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop for every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. So Ezekiel sees this new temple, and the temple is not just a temple, it's restoring the world, it's bringing dead things to life. In this particular case, the Dead Sea, which I'm sure you know, is so salty that nothing can live in it at all. And yet in Ezekiel's vision, this river that flows out of the temple, out of the temple, it starts in the temple and flows out of the temple, in through the desert, into the Dead Sea, brings life everywhere it touches. Okay, and so this is a vision, this is a promise that Yahweh is not done with his people, is not done with his temple, is not done with his world. Right? That he will, in some mysterious way, return and restore. Now, exactly what that looks like, we are going to wait for, because it's cool. It's really, really cool, but we do not have time. So I'm going to do one more thing very, very quickly. I have about five minutes left, and then I'm going to give you homework. Okay, any questions about exile? That was a whole lot. But uh, kind, of think, kind of frame it this way for yourself, okay? If the Exodus story is a creation story, then the exile story is an uncreation story, okay? One is creation, one is destruction, right? One is the birth of a nation, one is the end of a nation. And, and, and again, Janie, your word, doomsday. I mean, that, that is how, the, as much if not more so than the way the Egyptians felt in the midst of the plagues, Right? I mean, everything, when, when Ezekiel tells the exiles that God has left the temple, it, it, it is inevitable, inevitable, that the one last hope that they had was that some God would somehow do something miraculous, which he told him he wasn't going to do. Right? We heard that in Jeremiah. Right? And then after that, nothing. I mean, it was, it was inevitable that they were going to be destroyed. That, 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 that everything was an end. So, so if, you think of the, if you think of the two stories that way, that the exodus is the creation and the exile is the destruction, the doomsday, the apocalypse, uh, that, that will hopefully help you frame how the two stories sort of work in, in uh, 
Israel's history. And then, of course, what's fascinating is that even in the exile, something new is created on the other side, right? Through the, through the assembly of the texts and through the preservation of this people. And, of course, uh, if you know biblical history, you know that uh, 70 years later, some of them are allowed to return and start to rebuild. And, of course, by, by Jesus' time, there are Jewish people living in Jerusalem and they have a temple again and, and there's all of that. So there's, there's things going on and we're going to talk all about all that next week with who Jesus is and what it means that he came and what it means that he said he was a temple and what it means that he died what it means that he was killed by an empire that had other gods besides Yahweh, right? Um, and how all of these things end up playing out in the life of Jesus and what that means for us. Yeah, Steve, go ahead. Uh, what do you think the significance is of the eastward wind that created the dry ground and then the eastward flowing stream mm-hmm. coming out of the temple? What, what's the eastward you know, in the east is, that's where the Mount of Olives is. That's where, um, that's where, uh, sunrise. sunrise, I mean, it's hope. Again, if you're looking symbolically, like, that's, that's the way life comes from. Uh, that, that would be my guess. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any commentators try all this, tie all that stuff together, but to me, that makes the most sense. It's, you know, all the east is always a good direction. That you know, they believe the Jewish people even today who are, are expecting a Messiah believe he's going to descend to the Mount of Olives and then come through the east gate of the city. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's all. It's all. It's all. And again, I think that's all kind of tied to the sunrise. The temple faces to the east or faced, I guess. Uh, you know, that's so. It's it's all just good in life. Okay, so um, you know what? You guys want one more thing, even if it's going to be real crazy. We only have two minutes left. Okay, we're going to do it. Um, no one said anything, so we'll just do it. Uh, Genesis 2 and 3 is the story of humanity's original fall. Right? I mean, that's, right? Eat, this, eat the tree, exile from the garden, all of that. Okay? But the form that we have in our Bible, right, the one that was written down and preserved for us, came to us in the wake of the exile. So it's also, it's also a story about the exile. Okay? Now, here's, here's why. In the ancient Near Eastern world, not in Israel, okay, but in the cultures around Israel, serpents represented two things, wisdom and death. Okay? So you've seen a lot of other, other like Babylon and Egypt. And in fact, there's a snake-headed Egyptian god, right? And he represents wisdom and death. And the thing is, you can never quite trust them. Okay? They offer you good stuff, and you really, really want the stuff that they have, but there's always a string attached that you can't see that's a price that you're not really willing to pay. That, that's just that's what serpents do in that, in that world. Okay, That's the, how they work on all those stories. Um, it took more than it would give. It overpromised and underdelivered, which is exactly what idols do, which is exactly what false gods do. They overpromise and underdeliver. They take more than they give. And so you can see in the story of Genesis 3, in addition to the story of the original fall, right, that we listen to the wisdom of the world. We put our trust in, in things that promise us life, but instead bring us death. And what did the serpent say? You will not surely die. You will become like God. Now, here's what happens at the end of Genesis 3. Then Yahweh, God, said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take from the, tree of, the fruit of the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. 
So the Lord God, Yahweh God, banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword there that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Genesis 3 ends in exile. They're exiled from life. They're exiled from the garden. They're exiled from God. And so here again, it's Israel working out its own story. Understanding this is a pattern. Whoever said it, right? Are we talking about today or back then? This is a pattern. This is human existence. That we're offered life by God. We listen to the world. We listen to other false gods that overpromise and underdeliver. We end up exiled. We end up separated. We end up dead. Over and over and over and over and over. It's the human condition. Now, I want to end with, I didn't leave this on your, on your page, but write down Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. Because here again, you're going to hear the exile event tied into the flood story, another apocalypse, another end of the world scenario, right? But this time there's a silver lining. This is, this is Isaiah speaking to people in exile, speaking to people who survived the end of the world. And God says to them, Just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again let a flood cover the earth, so now I swear that I will never again be angry and punish you. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. So that's where we're going next week. What does this restored promise look like? What does a return from exile look like? What does it look like to be freed from this endless human cycle of failure? Homework. Uh, I gave you three really interesting uh, head scratchers there. Uh, I think you'll really, really enjoy all three of them. Uh, They're really going to pull a lot of this together for you. Let me pray over us, and then we can be dismissed. God, thank you again, as always, for the chance that we have to gather and to consider the things of your scriptures. Uh, Thank you for the story of your people, Israel, that we can see so clearly outlined for us. Thank you that even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you do not abandon us to death, but you provide a way out for us. Um, we understand that our story is Israel's story, that through your son Jesus you have grafted us into your people. And so we are the people that not only were brought out of slavery in Egypt, but have also been unfaithful to you by, by uh, following other gods. So we confess that, and we, we want to know you better. We want to understand what this rescue looks like. And so as we go this week, help us to consider what it means that even when the world comes crashing down around us, you are faithful to us and prepare our hearts for what we will hear next week when we see how your son Jesus walks into the middle of this very messy story and announces good news that you bring life from death. And we pray all of these things in his name. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next week. It's going to be a fun one again. So, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Next week is Ash Wednesday.